Well, now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our God, we bow before you once again, and we we come to you asking for things, because you are a gracious God who said that you will not give us uh, a stone when what we need is bread. You will give us good gifts. We thank you for those good gifts that you give us. We give you praise, thanks as we've already done, and we ask that you would continue to be good to us, not because we deserve it, but only because we come in Christ's name, in Christ's stead. We, we want to begin our prayer in Jesus' name because it is only through him that we can have boldness to come before you. Lord, we come thinking first of the missionaries that our church is part of supporting. We pray for Jeff and Jamie in particular. We pray that you would give them wisdom as they're seeking to make contacts with others. We pray that you would bring them along with people who you have um, you have put in their hearts to uh, want to know you. Lord, we pray you would, you would match them up with people who are seeking you, who are aware of their sin and see their need for a Savior. We pray you'd be working in the hearts of many people over there, that you'd grow up and raise up a church that would be a public church witnessing the death and resurrection of Christ. Lord, we pray for us as well that you would be working in that. Uh, we thank you for our congregation. Thank you for the fellowship that you are are bringing together in our midst. We pray that you would help us more and more to be a witness for your gospel. We pray that the way we love one another would reflect the love of Christ. We pray that the the fellowship we have with one another, that there would be opportunities for forgiveness to be asked and forgiveness to be granted in the way we're relating to one another, that, that your gospel and the love of Christ for us would so constrain us in the way we relate to others, that uh, we would reflect his forgiveness, his love to one another, and that would be a powerful witness to your gospel. Lord, we thank you, too, that we're not the only church in the area that is preaching your word. We pray for Infinity Church. We thank you for them and our partnership together with them. Lord, we pray for them for a building. We pray that you would knit that congregation together in love and unity and oneness around your gospel. We pray that you would add many to their number of people being saved. We pray they'd have many baptismal testimonies to reflect on the joy and uh, wonder of your gospel. Lord, we pray for us as we turn our attention to your word, that you would give us a sense of wonder and be amazed at the mystery of the incarnation. Lord, banish uh, the sentimentality out of us that would, would make a light of the incarnation, that we would think it's just something little, something to be maybe lightly appreciated, but rather give us the sense of the grandeur and majesty of it, and that we would be amazed at what you do, and we would, we would worship you. We pray that would be the effect of your word in our lives together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. It's the passage I just read. That's what we're looking in for this Christmas season. And I'm going to start by saying that that I don't assume that everybody who is gathered here is necessarily sharing the same Christian belief. I I pray that they are, and of course we want to... uh, We want to encourage people to be Christians, but yet we also want this to be a place where people can come and learn, and maybe they don't understand the Christian faith, but they can grow and understand it, and that's why they're here. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're happy that you're here. And 
so I don't, I don't presume that everybody is a Christian, but what I, I do want to submit to you, that no matter what worldview you hold, no matter what you think is the meaning of life, no matter what you think life is all about, that I would suggest that somewhere in the very center of what you believe is an element of mystery, something that cannot be completely figured out inside your brain. Something where you are presented with two things that you must believe, even though you don't understand how they go together. There would be some trust and authority. No, no matter where you come from, no matter what background you come from, there is some element of mystery in what you believe. And let me give you an example where that was very clear to me. I remember one time in college, I went to uh, the biology club bonfire. Now, I was not a biology major. I never set foot in the biology uh, building. But, uh, you know, it was a social thing. I was in college. They invited me, and it sounded like something fun to do, you know, postpone studying for a little bit of time. But anyway, when uh, I was excited about going, though, in part because I really wanted to talk to some real live people who believed in evolution. I hadn't really met too many people who did, and, and I was excited to actually having conversations with them to sort of pick their brain, understand them a little bit more. And sure enough, when I got there, the conversation turned to uh, creation and evolution because they found that I was a Christian, so they wanted to know what I thought, and well, it worked out well because I wanted to know what they thought too. And so they asked me some of the things about why Christians have problems with evolution. And, you know, I'm not a biology background, and Keith could have done a much better job than I did, but I just sort of presented... Um, what I saw as the logical problems with evolution. And the, the girl that I was talking to, me, to said something to me that I'll never forget. She said, uh, and that is why, um, and I wrote it down here. She said, uh, yeah, that is why I love evolution because there's an element of mystery to it. We don't have all the answers. We don't fully understand it. We just sit back and are amazed at how it works. And I thought to myself, well, now isn't that interesting coming out of the mouth of somebody who just a few sentences earlier said that she rejected Christianity because there wasn't enough scientific evidence. And, and I thought, but, you know, it makes sense from a Christian perspective because she is aware that she is made for something greater than herself, aware that she's made for something beyond what she can figure, uh, can figure out. But she's, how sad it is, though, that she was finding that in, in evolution, in an ideology, a false ideology at that. How sad that was, rather than her finding it in the living God. Well, today, we are going to look at a passage that will bring us face-to-face with mystery. Something that we should marvel at. Something that we can't understand and wrap our minds completely around. But that we just sit back and say, God is above us. God is beyond us. And we worship him. Unfortunately, we're going to, and we're going to look at the incarnation. You know, it's, it's Christmas time. We're looking at that. Unfortunately, though, around the, the Christmas season, particularly the advertising around it, has a way of kind of taking the incarnation and making it something that is just sentimental. You know, we, we have the, the baby Jesus and all, isn't he cute? And, and of course he's cute. Babies are all cute, particularly if you're the parent of them. You, you think they are. Sometimes if you're not, you, you don't. But anyway, if you're the parent, of course... That's true, and, and there is a nice, there's a family aspect to it. That is great. But unfortunately, we, we end up missing the fact that in the Bible, the incarnation is not something sentimental. It is something majestic, something earthy, something glorious, something sublime. 
It's something that the angels were amazed at. And angels, by the way, aren't cute little creatures. No, they are glorious, majestic beings who you would worship if they didn't tell you not to. And they are amazed at it. And so my prayer is that we would have that same heart as they do. We would would look at the incarnation here this morning and be amazed at what God is and what God does. So here's the plan. In looking at this passage, the first half of the message is going to be about the theology of the incarnation. We're going to We're going to get into what it means when we say that Jesus is God and man at the same time. And the second half, we're going to look at, okay, so what? What are the implications? And we're going to look at three implications for our understanding of God and three implications for our understanding of humanity and pray that that would help us as humans relate to God better. So let me go back and we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read part of it here, starting at verse 6. I'll start at verse 5. It's the beginning of the sentence. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And now we learn about Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Some versions say became nothing. By taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Pick up later and look at the rest. But that is the Christmas story from Jesus' perspective. That That is how he sees what happened on that Christmas morning when he became man, or even before that, when he was incarnate in the womb of Mary. And if we just sort of take that and kind of abstract it down to the essence of what Paul is saying there, it's this, that Jesus, the Son of God, is in the form of God. We looked last week, that means he is God, but he takes on the form of human. He takes on human form. He empties himself by taking on human form. That's what the passage says. Now, the first thing I want to do is to look at an illustration of that, to try to understand it better, because it doesn't at first make sense how it is that the Son of God emptied himself by adding humanity to himself. You know, if you, if you add something to yourself, you don't usually think of being emptied. You empty yourself by pouring yourself out, but, but it, it says exactly he emptied himself by taking on the form of a human. How did he empty himself by adding to himself? And Well, here's an illustration that might help. Um, I actually heard this illustration from a theologian named Bruce Ware, but I'm going to use it here. Uh, He says, uh, suppose, and he he tells the illustration real well because he loves sports cars. Um, But suppose you, you know, you have a sports car, a red sports car, and and you you don't want to own it because you can't afford it, but you want to test drive it from the the car dealership. And, And you get it, and it's shiny, and it's new, and the tires are so clean that you could, you know, eat off of it. And you take it for a test drive in the rain, and you hit every mud puddle. You go on all the back roads, and you take it back an hour later, and the thing is entirely caked in mud. You can't tell if it's a red sports car or a blue sports car or a green sports car. And, and the, the salesman, you know, is shocked, rightfully, and says, you know, what have you done to the car? And you say, well, look, man, I haven't taken anything away from the car. I've just added to it. Is he going to buy that? No. Because in adding to the car, you have taken something away from it. You have taken 
away its glory, in a sense. You have taken away its luster, its beauty. You have veiled that. It's still there. But you've put a covering over that. And I think that's kind of how we're to understand how Jesus emptied himself by adding humanity. It's not that he took away anything essential to his divine nature. He can't do that and still be God. It's that he added humanity to his divine nature and therefore was his, his nature was veiled. You see, the eternal son existed in perfect glory, but then added humanity to his nature. He veiled himself, veiled in flesh the God had seen, as we said. And the end result of this is that Jesus Christ, the one who walked the streets of Nazareth, is both God and man at the same time. Because he doesn't cease to be God. He is God, and then he adds humanity to himself. He is God and man at the same time. And this passage, I love because it gives us really benchmarks for understanding his deity and understanding his humanity. If we look in this passage, we'll see some things where it's clear in here that he is God, and then it's equally clear in here that he is man. So let me tell you these two benchmarks for understanding Jesus' deity and then his humanity. First, his deity. Well, it says here in this passage that he is in the form of God. He is equal with God. But then notice what it says right after. Uh, notice verse 9 that I didn't quite read yet. Uh, verse 9 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, notice that, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, if you happen to have a study Bible, you might notice that that is actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 45. Paul is quoting Isaiah there. And it's interesting the way he does it. He he quotes it almost perfectly, except he changes a key word. Any idea what word he changed in there? The word Jesus. That's not going to be in Isaiah uh, 45. See, in Isaiah 45, you can turn there and look at it sometimes. It says that the name of Yahweh. And here, Paul quotes it almost word for word. But instead of saying at the name of Yahweh, he says at the name of Jesus. What is Paul saying there? He's saying that Jesus is God. Jesus is worshipped as God. This is the language of worship. And if you read the Old Testament, everybody knows that there's only one person, one being who you should worship. And that is God. So when Paul puts Christ in the categories that they would understand for the object of their worship, he is clearly putting Christ as God. Christ is God. He is worshipped as God. The, the person who walked the streets of Nazareth, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's, he is God. He is worshipped as God. Therefore, he is God. Now, that is, it is helpful in our thinking about Jesus. I've also found that this is helpful talking to other people. I was... Uh, uh, one time had some Jehovah Witnesses come over my house, and they wanted to talk about theology. And I said, sure, we can talk about theology. That sounds fun. Uh, and we were talking about Jesus, and I was saying that Jesus is God. And they were saying, no, Jesus is not the Father. I said, well, I agree that Jesus is not the Father, but he's still God. And we were going back and forth there trying to kind of figure this out. And, and eventually I asked them, I was praying for God to give me wisdom, and I asked them, This question, 
is it right to worship Jesus? And they just recoiled, no. I said, well, that's where we disagree. And that's where I think you are out of the bounds of Scripture because clearly in the Bible, Jesus is worshipped. He's worshipped because he's God. So if you're talking to a Jehovah Witness friend or anybody really who is doubting that the Bible presents Jesus as God, the question is, is he worshipped? Is a clear way to, it's a clear benchmark for understanding Jesus' divinity here. Now there's also a clear benchmark for understanding Jesus' humanity. Look here at the verse I already read. Um, And being found in human form, so... He's, in, he's a human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, Jesus there does something that is quintessentially human. He dies. He dies. The only way see, for him to die is if he is really a human. He couldn't just look like a human. If he just appeared in human form, in the sense that he's not really a human, but just happened to, you know, morph into that appearance, but not really be a human, well, he wouldn't have died. No, he died. And it's, it's a, a clear truth that, you know, beyond doubt, that God cannot die. So how did Jesus, who is God, die? He died because he took on human nature. He became a true human, and that is why he could die. Now, let me just mention... We're looking here at the different benchmarks for Jesus' humanity. Let me just mention one more that I think is helpful to bring in here. And that is from Hebrews chapter 4, we read that he is tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin. So if you think about it there, that clearly points to Jesus' humanity and that he lived his life as a real human on earth. You see, if Jesus is tempted in all ways like us, he must have really been a true human. He must have had thought in human categories. I don't mean sinful categories in the least. And of course he knew that he was God. But he lived his life as a true human so that he could be really tempted in all ways like us. Now that's amazing, isn't it? Here we have God and man in one person. Here we have complete omniscience, all-knowing God, in human form, who lacks knowledge. Here we have the God who is all-powerful in the form of weakness. Here we have the one who possesses immortality taking on mortality. God and man united together. Now, in the history of the church, uh, in the history of the church, the, the church has done a lot better talking. The way, the way the church likes to, to talk about Jesus here is not by saying too much of what it's actually like for him to be God and man in one person, but rather saying what it's not like. We start saying what it's like, we run into problems because we say something wrong. So I'm going to stop saying what it's like and then just you know, quickly say what it's not. And, and that kind of boxes around you know, what is actually true. It, it, it draws a, a circle around what is, what is orthodox thinking about the person of Christ. So I'm going to ask several questions and I'll give you a hint. All of them are answered in the, uh, uh, negatively. No. The answer to all these questions is no. So we're looking at Jesus as God as man. Can we say that Jesus is God turning into man? The answer is no. Good. Thank you, Linda. It's not like 
that Superman movie in the early 80s where, you know, he wants to be a real human so he can date a girl and he sort of goes in that icebox thing and, and weird, you know, pre-modern, this century graphics, uh, special effects thing, he turns into a man. No, it's not like that. It is not someone who was God and then becomes man. That's not the person of Jesus. Uh, It is said by Augustine, without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. He is God. And and that is why, um, yeah, he, he is God, takes on, assumes humanity. Okay, number two, can we say the incarnation then, if it's not God becoming, turning into man, is it man reaching up to God to be like God? The answer is no. Now, in our pride, we might want it to be, because in our pride, we might think that, yeah, we can become God, if given the right circumstances, right? And that would be a lot more amenable to many, uh, to the Greek mind. They had categories for a human who aspires to godhood. They, They understood that. The problem, though, is that in their minds, God is already too much like them. They can only imagine man becoming God because they have taken God and reduced them first to their own size. In Scripture, though, God is above us. And in every case, it is not us reaching up to him, but rather him coming down to us. We talk about it as divine condescension. God comes down. Now, we don't like when someone on earth speaks condescendingly to us because we don't like them to assume that they're above us. But see, God speaks condescendingly to us, and he really is above us. If he doesn't speak condescendingly to us, he doesn't speak to us because he is above us. So in Scripture, it is always God coming down. God came down when he created the world and the Spirit hovered over the depths of the deep. God came down to find Adam and Eve when they sinned. God came down to give his people his laws. God came down to warn the people of coming judgment. And then God comes down in the form of man. It is not us reaching up to God. It is God coming down. And that's why the passage stresses that he was in the form of God already. We can talk about the pre-temporal existence of Jesus, of, of, of the Son of God. He existed before he came down in human form. And by the way, that's a really helpful truth to talk about if you're talking to a Muslim friend about Jesus. That's something they don't understand about Christianity. Talk about the pre-temporal existence of Jesus, that he existed with God before the incarnation. That'll help them understand Christianity better. Okay, so if we can't say that it is um, God turning into man or man aspiring to be God, can we say that Jesus Christ is part God and part man? Uh, Sort of like cookies, you know, you have different ingredients and you combine them together and, uh, and you get something different, something that is a combination of the the various things you put in it. So Jesus is 50% God and 50% man. You put them together and you get a third thing. No, no. Jesus is 100% God and 100%. He is fully God and fully man together. Okay, then, if we can't say that, is it basically the case that what you have then are two different people God, one is God and one is man, and they occupy the same physical space in the person. Two different people who are together. No, we can't say that either. It is not two different people. It is one person with two natures. 
Now, at this point, you're thinking, wait a minute, I don't, I don't understand. That's exactly right. <laughs> We're not supposed to understand it. If you understand it, you probably don't understand it. You think you understand it. This is supposed to leave us in a place where we're just, I don't get it. How does that happen? How can you have God and man, and they're both different, and yet they're one person? I don't get it. What's the point? The point is that God is above us. The point is we stand back and we are amazed. That is the mystery of the Christian religion, where we believe both, because that's what Scripture asserts. That's what Scripture clearly teaches. We saw both are in here. He is God and he is man. We believe both even though we have no clue how they come together. Now, so what? How, how does that impact us? How does that change our thinking? Well, let me give you three things that it teaches us about God. First, and just as I was saying already, one, it teaches that God is beyond us. God is beyond us. We can't figure him out. As the scripture says, Psalm 145, his ways are beyond tracing out. We can't trace over his ways in a way that we could fully understand him. Oh, I have a, there was a professor I had in seminary who uh, I would really enjoy listening to his lectures. And one of the things I loved about his lectures is the way he would answer questions because students could throw the hardest questions at him and he had this amazing way of understanding the categories and throwing out an answer that was like, wow, how'd you think of that? And he'd just do it without skipping a beat. You know, great mind. Well, in, in preparation for this message, I went back and I listened to one of his lectures on the person of Jesus. And uh, it was really interesting because as I was hearing him answer questions, I didn't hear him say what I normally expected. He would say, I don't know. And in the lecture, I couldn't always hear the question. You know, it sounded a little bit like the, the Charlie person, Charlie Brown. You know, you, you don't hear the question clearly, but I'd hear his answer. I don't know. Another question. I don't know. Another question. I don't have an answer for that. I don't, scripture, don't think scripture has an answer for that. Over and over again, he's, we don't know. That's, that's a good answer. That, that's one of, I think, the brightest theological minds in the world today. And he's, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. That, that's what we come to in this passage. We can understand that Jesus is God and man in the same person. We understand that. We understand that, he, that, that God took the form of man. We understand that it's two natures in one person. We understand that he does not cease to be God, but takes on humanity. We understand that he is worshipped and that he dies. But how do those relate together? We don't know. We don't have an answer for it. And where scripture is silent, let us be silent. Let us not try to say what we do not know. Now maybe you're here this morning and that really bothers you. Maybe you don't like unanswered questions. Maybe you want to have it figured out. You want to know how it works. Well, friends, let me just, just think about it, though. If this is true, if it is true that, that this God really is above us, if it is true that he is our creator, we are dependent upon him, wouldn't it be the case that we wouldn't figure it out? Wouldn't it make sense? I mean, we, we might not understand why, but we can understand why we can't understand why. That's because his ways are above us. That is what it means to confess that we believe in God and that his ways are not our ways. Now, friends, will you let this truth humble you? Will you come before it and say, God, I don't understand, and will you not make your own mind the center of, of understanding in your life? But will you yield to his way? See, if, if we come to the point, this, this really helps us in all theology and in all thinking about our life. If we get to the point where, you know what, we don't have a full explanation for it, we can't fully understand it. We just trust 
and believe. And that's how we need to live all of our Christian life. Not fully understanding why God might call us to various things, but trusting and following. I challenge you, spend this Christmas season meditating on the Incarnation. Think about how, how it is beyond us that we can't fully figure it out and meditate on that. Spend time thinking about it. So number one, God is beyond us. Number two, God is kind. God is kind. We see that so clearly here in this passage. Why does he take human form? It is for us and for our salvation. He comes down so that he can die on the cross. It is clear in Scripture that the incarnation is an act of love. John 3, God so loved the world that he gave. That is the Son coming down. John, 1 John 4, herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the sacrifice of atonement for our sins. It is out of love that Christ comes to earth. Now, friends, one of the real struggles that many people have is how it can be that God is kind, and yet there is so much suffering in the world. And think about it. We have the one-year anniversary of Newtown, the shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. And then that's the, the evils that are maybe more distant from us. We all have evils that we are much more uh, closely acquainted with, don't we? And we might think, wait a minute, if God is so loving and wise, why has he allowed me to experience this suffering? Well, why doesn't he do something about it? How can God be good and I yet still have this pain, this physical pain maybe, this relational pain? How can that be? Well, the incarnation answers that, but not in giving us a logical answer that we can see by seeing that the Son experiences that evil as well. That he comes to earth and, and suffers. God is not aloof and distant. He comes into our experience and experiences that suffering that we do. It's a lot harder to shake your fist and say to God, why are you letting me suffer like this when we see him suffering like that too? So my Christian friends, can you look at the incarnation and trust in God's goodness? Even if there are areas of your life where it's hard to see how God is good given that area of your life? Can you see that he experienced suffering for your sake? And trust that he is good. Number three, the thing that teaches us about God is that God wants to reveal himself. And this is really an aspect of God's kindness. God is kind by coming down and and revealing himself. The incarnation is an aspect of God's kindness, and it's also an aspect of God revealing who he is. We, We see that clearly in scripture. And this is where the car illustration that I shared before breaks down. I mean, if you add mud to a car, you don't understand the car as well. And that's because the car already is an object uh, that we can understand. It is in our world. But you see, God is different. When God takes on human form, even though that is a veil over his divine nature, it is so that we can understand. Because if we had pure God, that would be so far beyond our comprehension that we wouldn't wouldn't benefit us. He He assumes our nature. He condescends, he accommodates himself to us. He accommodates himself to us by taking on human flesh so that we can understand him. So yes, in some sense it is a veil, but it is a veil not so that we are prevented from seeing the real nature of God. It is a veil so that we see the nature of God. And we see that in Scripture. John 1, no one has seen God, but but the Son of God has come down, uh, John says, to human form to make him known. 
And friends, here's what you need to take from this. If God has done such extraordinary measures, if he has taken such extraordinary measures to make himself known, what measures are you taking to know him? Do you, do you read his word regularly? Do you come to him in prayer? Do you spend time thinking about the incarnation of his nature? Do you meditate on him? Do you make attending church a priority? Do you use your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you understand him better and help you grow? That, that is why God has given us a church, a church family, so that in our relationships, we understand God better. If Christ has made himself known to us, shouldn't we work to know him and to help others know him? So that was three things that the Incarnation teaches us about God, that God is beyond us, that God is kind, and that God wants to reveal himself. Now, three things that we learn about humanity. First, humanity is noble in a sense. It is honorable, and there is a dignity and value to it. I say that because Jesus took human form. He, He didn't take the form of a bird. With all due respect to C.S. Lewis, he didn't take the form of a lion. He took human form. It's because humans alone, of all the creatures, are made in God's image. God has fashioned us. When he made humanity, he made us in such a way that his son could take our form. That's what it means to be made in God's image. Friends, that doesn't change even if you're treated as less than human, as Jesus was treated as less than human. There's a sense there that the incarnation should teach us the value of human life, that we should treat it well, that we should respect life. We should respect life when it is old. We should respect life in the womb. We should respect life when it's hurt and abused. We should respect life if it is rich or poor. There's something sacred about human life. God has taken on the form of human life. So it teaches us that human life is valuable, that humanity has, is noble in a sense. But then it also teaches us that human life is broken and sinful beyond what we can understand. What happened when, the, when God the Son took on human form and lived his life on earth? What happened to him? Well, they murdered him. That shows us something about the nature of humanity. The Bible says men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They did not like him coming into earth. They did not like seeing the light. And what did it take in order to redeem humanity? It took the crucifixion of the Son of God. It took God taking on human flesh and being slaughtered for the human race, for those who would believe in him. Nothing short of God coming in human form and dying for his people will save them. And friends, that teaches of us about our depravity. It teaches us about the darkness and evil in our hearts. Yes, the incarnation says something about the, uh, the honor of humanity, but not its goodness. Not its goodness. But third, humanity, God's people, are redeemed in Christ. Why does God take in our our nature? So that he can die on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice for us, so he can take our place. We believe in what's called substitutionary atonement. He died for those who would believe in him in their place. And then he redeems us by making us new. He, he, uh, He changes our nature so that we can be like him. 
Friends, we see the nature of humanity, we see the nature of God. Isn't it great that we have a Savior who, who perfectly fits our need? We need God to die, to take on human flesh and die for us. And we need him to change our nature because it is depraved and broken. That's exactly what he does. I mean, the point of this passage is that we should have the mind that is in Christ Jesus. And notice how he did that. He takes on our nature so that we might become like him. Well, friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you, plead with you, run to Christ. You need this kind of Savior, and this kind of Savior is offered. So come to him. Come to him quickly. And then be like him. Have the mind that was in him. You know, the beauty of the incarnation, as many people have pointed out, is that that Jesus, he didn't just take the form of humanity. He took the form of a particular person. He lived his life amongst particular people. He had friends. He had those who he loved because he was close to. He had an address. He lived in a house. He walked certain streets. He lived out his life in a very specific way. And then to have the mind that is in him is to live out our lives, our human lives, you know, in all the rawness and in all the details of our lives. It is not just to, when we have the mind of Christ, it doesn't mean we just love humanity. We should. It means we love specific people. God calls us to love specific people, our spouses, our children, our brothers and sisters in Christ, starting with those who are in our church family. To follow Christ is to live out our life in a particular place, in a particular time, and to love others like he did. Will you do that? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, and we thank you that you would think of us And you would send your son in our likeness, in our our form, so that he would die on the cross to forgive us our sins and then change our nature, that we can actually love and follow him, that we can be like him. Oh, thank you for sending him to be like us, that we might be like him in his human nature, not in his divinity, of course not, but in his human nature, that we might follow his example, that we might imitate him and love one another. We pray that our church would reflect this kind of self-emptying love of Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.